0: Welcome to this week's podcast from the Ecobing Center. We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor Jacob Biswell. Nehemiah chapter 13 is where we're going to be this morning. Have you ever made a promise you didn't keep? Anyone ever done that? I've done that. We all all fail to, to keep our promises sometimes and our good intentions and plans often fall by the wayside. Sometimes we blatantly break our promises. You know, I think the one we're most guilty of is we commit Excuse me, to doing something and then something comes up. Like, oh, that's a better option. Or, man, I said I'm going to do that, but I don't really want to do that. I didn't really want to follow through on that. Someone said, uh, I think it was actually Billy Graham, that moral failure and spiritual decline are a great deal like a flat tire. Most flat tires don't occur as a result of of a blowout. Most flat tires happen over time. A slow leak starts decreasing a little bit over time. And in cool weather and in hot weather and in our passage today, I'd love to tell you that when we come to Nehemiah 13, we've been in Nehemiah for weeks and we're, we're wrapping it up, this last message in Nehemiah this morning. I'd love to tell you that Nehemiah, the last chapter, is this glorious party. Where everything's gone well and everything's just, you know, the city of Jerusalem is just full of the glory of God. But that's not where we arrive when we get to the book or to the chapter 13. Before we jump into chapter 13, I want to give you a little bit of background information. Number one, in chapter 12, Nehemiah goes back to Persia. You remember we talked back at the beginning, Nehemiah had a real cushy job in Persia. He was you know, the, the cupbearer to the king. He had everything he had need of. It was comfortable. It was like living in the White House. He he had everything he had need of. And so in, in chapter 12, he goes back to Persia. His assignment in Jerusalem had come to an end. And so he comes back to Persia to return to be the cupbearer. That was the promise he'd made to the king, that he was going to go back and he would be the cupbearer again to the king. I mean, the king at that time... Uh, Xerxes was so dependent upon Nehemiah. They had built this relationship. There was this friendship. He trusted Nehemiah with his life. So to let him go for a few years, that was a big deal. And so here, Nehemiah has come back to Persia. And that's where we're at in in chapter 12 is that he's returned to Persia. And and at this time, God begins to speak to Nehemiah again. Nehemiah requests and receives permission after 12 years, and after having returned to Susa, he goes back to Jerusalem to retire. So he serves out his time in Susa at Persia, and then he retires. And he's going to go back to Jerusalem to live out his glory days. He's excited. I worked so hard for 12 years to get the wall built. We got the people living in the center of the city. We worked so hard, and now I've, I've finished out my term as the cupbearer. Now I'm going to return to Jerusalem and I'm going to retire. And then we get to chapter 13. and Chapter 13 records what Nehemiah discovered when he returned. I can't imagine what he felt. So Nehemiah chapter 13 is where we are. On that day, they read aloud from the book of Moses and the hearing of the people. And there was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. Because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. Now prior to this, Elishib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Debiah, had prepared a large room for him. Where formerly they put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils, and the tithes of grain... Wine and oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. But during all this time, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I'd gone to the king. After some time, however, I asked a leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and learned about the evil that Elishib had done for Tobiah by preparing for him a room in the courts of the house of God. It was very displeasing to me, so I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Then I gave an order, and they cleansed the rooms, and I returned there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. I also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given them, so that the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away, each to his own field. So I reprimanded the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? Then I gathered them together and restored them to their posts. All Judah then brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. In charge of the storehouses, I appointed Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padai of the Levites. In addition to them was Hanan the son of Zachar, the son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and it was their task to redistribute to their kinsmen. Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out my loyal deeds which I have performed for the house of my God and its services. In those days I saw Judah, in Judah, some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys as well as wine, grapes, figs and all kinds of loads. And they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them on the day they sold food. Also, men of Tyre were there who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. Then I reprimanded them and said to them, What is this evil thing you are doing by profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do the same so that our God brought on us and on this city all this trouble? Yet you are adding to the wrath of Israel by profaning the Sabbath. It came about that just as it grew dark, the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and they should should not open them until after the Sabbath. Then I stationed some of my servants at the gate so that no load would enter on the Sabbath day. Once or twice the traders and merchants of every kind of merchandise spent the night outside Jerusalem. Then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I will use force against you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come as gatekeepers to sanctify the Sabbath day. For this also remember me, O God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your lovingkindness. In those days I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon and Moab. As for their children, half spoke in the language of Ashdod, and none of them were able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. So I contended with them, cursed them, struck some of them, and pulled out their hair. (laughs) Nehemiah was mad (laughs) and made them swear by God, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take of their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations, there was no king like him. And he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. Do we then hear about you that you have committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Even one of the sons of Joada, the son of Elisheb, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanbalat the Horonite. So I drove him away from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I purified them from everything foreign and appointed duties for the priests and the Levites, each in his task. And I arranged for the supply of wood at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. I pray, Father, that it would be alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. I thank You, Father, that this morning, it would be real to us. And that, Father, as we close out this series on Nehemiah, your anointing that makes preaching easy would be upon me. And that, Father, I could communicate your heart to your people. I recognize my complete and total dependence on you this morning, God. Without you, I can't do anything. But in you, I live and move and have my being. And I thank you, Father, for your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've, we've read through that Nehemiah is upset. But I want to give a little bit more background here. There's actually a, a kind of a literary link. That's the English teacher in me coming out. Between chapter 10 and chapter 13. In chapter 10, the people made four vows or four promises. And we talked about that a few weeks ago. They made four things that they would do. They, they vowed to submit to God's Word. Secondly, they vowed to live separate from the world. Third, they promised to keep the Sabbath. And fourth, they agreed to support God's work. Sadly, by the time we get to chapter 13, as we've just read, all of those promises had been broken. This reminds us that the most spiritual person and the best church can find its standards eroded if we give in to the pressures of the world. At the dedication in chapter 12, the builders celebrated their moral victory in a battle against secularism and materialism, but they had not won the war. Since chapter 13 is best understood in the light of chapter 10, I'm going to follow the same outline I used a few weeks ago. And I'm going to talk about four things that they broke. Four broken promises. The first promise that they broke was the promise of submission. The promises of chapter 10 begin with an affirmation of loyalty to the Word of God. Verse 29 says, To obey carefully, this is 10, 1029, Obey all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord of our God. In Nehemiah 13.1, we read that it says that they read aloud the words, but they did not follow it. They did not carefully attend to it. We see that again, Scripture was read publicly and those presented realized how sloppy they'd been about their loyalty to God. As they listened to the words of Moses, they remembered what had happened to their ancestors. I encourage you, I don't have time to really break it down this morning, but if you would read Deuteronomy 23, 3-5, through five, you'll get a better understanding of what happened in the story of Balaam where the Moabites and the Ammonites hire Balaam to come and curse the children of Israel. And then the donkey talks. Remember that story? This may sound crude, but I want to write a book someday. It says, God will use any ass to speak. That's King James Bible. That's King James. It's in the King James Bible. There's my dad joke for the week. But here's the good news. When the Israelites heard what God's Word had to say, they obeyed it. Check out verse 3. When the people heard this law, they excluded from all Israel who were foreign descent. Aren't you thankful we're on the other side of the cross? We don't live in Jerusalem. We'd all be excluded from Jerusalem. Unless you were of Jewish descent, you would be completely excluded. And so, you know... We all fall short, we break our promises, we mess up, we don't always follow what we know to be true. And it seems to me that we have two choices. We can continue the pattern of disobedience or we can simply stop what we've been doing and determine to live out what God says. The Christian life is a series of new beginnings. Aren't you thankful that His mercies are new every morning? I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful for the grace and mercy of God. I'm so thankful that He reaches into our mess and, and turns it around. Is there something you need to do that you've been putting off? That's my question for you this morning. Is there a decision you need to make? I suspect that some of you have no question about what God wants you to do, but you're afraid to do it because it's difficult. If God is asking you to do something, He'll take care of the details. Matthew 6.33 says this, Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. The second promise that they broke this morning was the separation promise. While they broke their promise to submit to God's Word, they determined once again to do what God says. The next promise they did not keep was to separate from the world. They ignored this vow in two ways. Number one, an enemy intruder. Verses 4-9, through we see that one of these Ammonites was actually living in the Jewish temple. Not only did they not separate from the world, they invited the Ammonite into the temple. Like, that's a big deal. Nehemiah was horrified to find out that Elishib, who was the high priest in Israel, had prepared a guest room for Tobiah. This is Tobiah we read about earlier, who said, if a fox climbed on your wall, it would crumble. And now they've made room for Tobiah in the temple. Unbelievable. See, so here's, the, here's the deal. This room was not just a a little room. It was the size of a warehouse. This was the storeroom, and Elishib clears out all of the instruments for worshiping God, all of the grain that had been stored away, and he makes a suite for Tobiah. Here you go, Tobiah. Just have all the space you want in the temple. Throughout the book of Nehemiah, Tobiah was an enemy of God and he was a thorn in Nehemiah's side. Nehemiah had dealt with him many times and he had made sure that Tobiah had never been allowed inside the city walls. And here he is in the temple. Eliashib had been trusted with a privileged responsibility, but by cultivating wrong relationships, he misused his office and frustrated God's work. Nehemiah saw Elishib's act for what it was. It was an offense against a holy God, a public denial of the priority of spiritual things, and an act of blatant disobedience to Scripture. In verse 7, Nehemiah called it an evil thing. That word evil there is a disgusting, putrid, horrible thing. So what Elishib did here, he, he not only just... Broke the rules. He committed an act of treason against God. The identification of the problem demanded drastic public and immediate action. Take a look at verses 8-9. through I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I'll never forget. I, I had committed an act of disobedience against my parents. And I watched as my mom chucked Everything out of my room. She left me a sheet, a pillow, one pair of underwear, a pair of shorts, and a t shirt, and a pair of flip flops. And I said, Mom, I can't wear flip flops to school. She said, Figure it out. Emptied my room and then took the door off the room. And I had to earn it back piece by piece. She's given me great ideas for parenting. But I mean, Nehemiah goes off on Tobiah. He showed him the door and then he threw his furniture, the TV, the computer, the stereo into the street. He gave an order to have the rooms cleansed. Nehemiah wanted every trace of Tobiah's presence removed from the temple. Have the room disinfected and fumigated, tint it, paint the walls, replace the flooring. I don't want any evidence that he has been here. Nehemiah could not live with wrong in a place that was built for right. The first separation vow they broke was that they allowed pagan unbelievers to take up residence in their temple. But let me say this to you. How often do we make room in our temple for pagan things? How often do we open up space in our lives for things we know go against the standards God has set for us, but because it's comfortable and because we've cultivated relationship with it, we make room for it. And then we wonder why things aren't going the way they should. It's time to have a throwout party. The second separation promise they broke was to allow mixed marriages to take place. Again, aren't we thankful we're on this side of the cross? There is now no Jew nor Greek, no slave nor free. So, so hear me this morning, because I had someone comment on last week's video. Are you preaching against mixed marriages? No. Let me make this clear. I'm preaching in context of what happened in Scripture. Thank you. But see, at this time, in this context and in this culture. This was key to the plan of God. This was important for them at that time. In, verse, in chapter 10, verse 30, it says, We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or to take their daughters for our sons. I preached a lot on why that was. Because there was an exchange of their gods that would take place. It was, it was that when they came into marriage, they would have to forsake that God was the only God. They were forsaking Yahweh. And so the same is true. This is the mixed marriage I'm against is believers and unbelievers marrying because we are called to live apart from the way the world lives. So then we see that in verses 23 through 28 that they had allowed their daughters to be married off. And when Nehemiah returned, he saw that the men of Judah had married women from Ashdod, Ammon and Moab. He also heard their children speaking foreign languages, which meant they would not know how to read the law of God. They would not know how to understand the Word of God. They they had no reference. The sins were damaging their home and family life. Only a few years earlier, as God's people were preparing the walls It says that the Ammonites and the men of Ashdod had plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem. Let me make this clear. This is how the enemy will come against your life. He may not come directly to destroy the wall, but he will find an open door in your life to weasel his way in. And that's exactly so the men of Ashdod and the Ammonites recognize, okay, we're not going to be able to tear down their wall, but what we will do is we'll tear down their families. We'll parade our women. And this is what would happen in those days. The young men would be going off to work in the fields and they would have the women come out in hardly nothing and parade them to tempt the men. And the men would say, oh, we want to marry that. <laughs> and it was the, the, the men of Ashdod, it was their way of tearing down the walls. Because if they couldn't tear down the city, they'd tear down the family. See I think sometimes we are so focused well you know all of this is going well and my finances are well but what's happening in your family what's happening in your heart are you guarding the walls of your family yesterday's enemies had become today's marriage partners in challenging them against their about their disobedience Nehemiah uses arguments from experience in verses 23 and 24 and history in verse 26. This really lit Nehemiah up. He went off on the people. Verse 25 says, he, I rebuked them. I love this. Called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. Have you ever wanted to do that? Why won't you Listen. By calling down curses on them, he was pronouncing God's judgment on their actions. He was so mad and his anger so intense, he walked up. Have you ever seen... <laughs> there's a great clip. I wanted to have it pulled up, but I just didn't have time to find it. There's a clip where this guy's at a, a, at a birthday party and this guy comes up and, talks, and he just slaps him. And then he starts slapping everyone else. And the, the police start walking up and he's bam, bam, bam. And he just goes off. That was Nehemiah. Or the great Veggie Tales, where they come, where where uh, uh, who's the guy who Jonah comes, and it's the city of slapping fish. Nehemiah just starts slapping him, pull him by the hair. I don't know what he did with the people who had no hair. Pulled him by the ear. That's right. I mean, he he was mad. This may seem like violent and inappropriate behavior for a man of God, but when we interpret Nehemiah's actions against the backdrop of Israel's history, it's easier to understand his intense feelings. This very sin was the primary reason they were taken into Babylonian captivity in the first place. Nehemiah knew that pagan women led even their wisest king into sin. And Nehemiah himself had personally experienced the results of Solomon's sin. That's why his grandparents had been carried off to Babylon. Nehemiah had not grown up in Jerusalem because Solomon was so into foreign women that they were led off into captivity. And so Nehemiah's like, guys, wake up. We've been here before. I did not devote 12 years of my life to building this wall so that you could just run off and marry whoever you wanted. That's why he was the servant to King Artaxerxes. There was no way that Nehemiah wanted God's judgment to fall on Israel again. If God did not tolerate it in Solomon's life, he certainly would not allow it now. The third fractured vow was that they neglected to support God's work. We see this in verse 13. Their final statement in chapter 10 was that they would not neglect the house of our God. This is what they promised. We will not neglect the house of our God. And when we come to this final chapter, Nehemiah discovers that the ministry at the temple was hampered in verse 10 because the Levites and the singers had to go work in the fields to survive. The Levites and the singers were meant to be in the temple worshiping and leading the people in worship of God, but they had taken away their portion and now those who were called to the Levitical ministry were off working in a field so that they could eat. Nehemiah again I mean, when we really think of it, this is probably why Tobiah had a room in the temple. Because where the Levites and the singers should have been living, Tobiah had taken up residence. Nehemiah again has some tough talking. He says, so I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Nehemiah then set up a system so that they could once again put God first with their finances. Nehemiah not only rebuked them, he showed them what to do to make changes. And let me tell you that, that a rebuke from the Lord will always leave you better than he found you. A real rebuke from the Lord will always leave you better than he found you. See, there there are too many people who love to rebuke. They don't like to rebuild. It's one of the issues in in, in the prophetic movement today is that we have a whole bunch of prophets who love to, to do the first four parts of Jeremiah 1, tear down, destroy, pull up. But the last two are to build up and restore. Nehemiah set up some administrative systems to ensure that the tithes would once more start rolling into the temple. The temple officers in charge of the gifts had left their posts because there was nothing coming in or out. So in verse 11, Nehemiah goes, "Pluck some out of the field. Get back to where you belong." And I want to say to you this more, I believe prophetically, some of you are in the wrong field, and God wants to move you back to your proper place. In verse 12, we read that the people started bringing their tithes of grain, new wine, and oil into the storerooms. They renewed their commitment to put God first in their finances and brought to God what was rightfully His. He then appointed four men in verse 13 to supervise the treasury and distribute the tithes and offerings. Interestingly, these men represented the priests, the Levites, the scribes, and the laymen. They were all different, but they had one thing in common. They were trustworthy. Let it be said of us that we're trustworthy. When God's people start to go flat spiritually, one of the first places it shows up is in their giving. Jesus put it this way, Matthew 6.21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Just as the Israelites renewed their commitment to honor God with their wallet, so too you and I need to do an honest assessment of our giving. Are you putting God first in your finances? Then the Sabbath promise. They'd broken their promise to keep the Sabbath holy. When they signed that covenant, the Israelites promised not to do business with the Gentiles on the Sabbath day. It says, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath. Yet Nehemiah discovered that the people were not only doing business on the Sabbath, they were treating it as any other day of the week. They'd broken their fourth promise by secularizing the Sabbath. Verse 16 tells us that there were men of Tyre who actually moved into Jerusalem and set up their business. The leaders allowed them to operate their shops seven days a week. Nehemiah didn't sit back and let this promise be ignored either. He spoke sternly and acted firmly by instituting three action steps. First, in verse 15, he rebuked the Jews who were working and selling on the Sabbath and made them stop. Guys, stop doing it. You know what you committed to? We're to keep the Sabbath holy. Second, he rebuked the nobles for allowing business on the Sabbath day and reminded them that the violation of the Sabbath was one of the first reasons that their captivity took place. He says, didn't your forefathers do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. And his third step was very practical. He shut the gates. Put some of his own guards on duty. He threatened those who wanted to sell their goods on this holy day and ordered the Levites to set a good example and minister to the people. In demanding that the people keep their Sabbath promise, Nehemiah was emphasizing the centrality of worship the importance of witness, the necessity of rest, and the priority of love. Loving obedience is always better than a full wallet. This command was not intended to be a chore. God never demands anything from us that is not for our own good. I think that's where we struggle sometimes is that we don't believe God actually wants good for us. We struggle with this trust issue of God that He has the best things for us. And so when He asks us to do something, we question it because we don't think it'll work out for our best interest. Now, if our best interest is rooted and grounded in our flesh, it probably won't. But it will work out for your eternal good. As we wrap up this chapter in our series on Nehemiah, I want to give you my top 10 lessons from this practical book. Number one, it's never too late to do what's right. Even though God's people had messed up pretty bad it didn't disqualify them from service or ruin their relationship with God. Don't let your past keep you from what, from doing what is right. It really doesn't matter what you've done. What matters is that you begin right now to renew your walk with God. Number 2, don't play around with sin. Nehemiah dealt with sin decisively and abruptly. Most of us underestimate our sinfulness and overestimate our goodness. Friend, don't flirt with sin. Don't get cozy with compromise. Be vigilant. Romans 12:9 says, "Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good." I see so much flirtatiousness with sin in our culture today, especially in the church culture. God is looking for a holy people. Number three. Remember who God is. He is great. He is awesome. That means He is large and He is in charge. He is also good. If you were a real church, you'd say all the time. (laughs) Even when bad things happen to us, He's good and He's gracious. He doesn't treat us as we deserve, but always grants us grace and fresh starts. Number four. Cultivate a lifestyle of prayer and praise. God desires for each of us to worship Him with reverence and with joy both individually and corporately. And as we do, we'll also cry out to Him in confession and supplication. When we pray, we should pray and be ready to shoot up those popcorn prayers throughout the day. It should be a lifestyle. Prayer should not just be something on the calendar. It shouldn't just be something we schedule at, It should be our lifestyle. We should be in constant communion with the Father. Number five, move out of your comfort zone. Most of us are way too comfortable with the way we're living. We tend to default to what is predictable and easy, and God wants us to be available to Him. When He asks us to do something that stretches us, let's be ready to move. Number six, don't let difficulties derail you. When hard times come, and they will, I can guarantee you, don't bail on God. God allows tough times in our life for a purpose. Use them to get closer to him and ask him to develop your character through the process. Number seven, seek to resolve relational ruptures. This is a hard one for us. As we spend time with people, we are bound to have conflict and disagreements. Ask anyone who's married. Each of us sin against each other. And others sin against us. Don't allow this conflict to go underground. I think we are so good at stuffing. But we can't. Meet face to face and seek resolution. If you haven't gone through the bait of Satan, go through the bait of Satan. Learn how to deal with your offenses. It's a great Bible study. Number eight. Say yes to God's priorities and no to the devil's distractions. God wants us to live purposeful life, focused on those things that matter to him. The evil one seeks to get us off track through busyness and selfishness. Commit yourself to God's priorities, specifically as it relates to your time, your talents, and your treasures. I read a little thing one time that said, if the enemy can't get you to fall, he'll get behind you and push you so fast you'll miss God. And I think that happens way too much. Number nine, believe the promises of God and act upon them. While it can be helpful to make promises or vows to God, it's more important to believe the promises of God and act accordingly. We don't have to perform for God. Instead, claim what God has promised to do for you and ask Him to give you the tenacity to take Him at His word. Now, this isn't the name it and claim it prosperity stuff. This is I know what His Word says and I'm going to walk out His Word. In hard times, in easy times, in happy times, in sad times, His Word is true. And I'm going to hold to His promises. And number 10, allow God to use you. God takes great pleasure in using people who are available to Him. You don't have to be a super saint or a spiritual giant. God delights in using ordinary people like us, so that his extraordinary power can be unleashed in our lives. God took Nehemiah, a slave and a cupbearer, to restore a city. God uses people that will give him their all. Nehemiah prays three prayers for himself in chapter 13. It's one of the few times we see him pray for himself. He spends a lot of time praying for the city, praying that God would bring justice. These are the three prayers he prays for himself. Verse 14, Remember me for this, O God. Do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. In verse 22, Remember me for this also, O my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. And in verse 31, Remember me with favor, O my God. He reminded God of his faithfulness and prayed that what he had done would not be forgotten. Nehemiah wasn't pleading for blessings on the basis of personal merit, but because he knew that God's favor only comes by his grace and his mercy. He is simply asking God to remember him and what he had done. He wanted God's favor and reward, not the accolades of men. These prayers reveal what kind of man Nehemiah was. Nehemiah could have built a great monument to himself. He could have had a big gold plaque put on the the gates of the city built by Nehemiah the Great. He could have looked back at his life and been proud of his accomplishments or he could have been frustrated because the believers had broken their promises. In other words, he could have been impressed with his past accomplishments or discouraged about the present situations, but he chose neither of those things. He simply said, Lord, a day is coming when all of this will be over. I want the meaning of my life to be anchored in the future. As I close this morning, he knew there was a time coming when he'd be rewarded by the Lord and embraced by Him. His prayers revealed that he was living for that day when the Lord would say to him, well done, good and faithful servant. My question to you this morning is, are you living for that day? I think we spend so much of our life trying to build monuments of our own personal accomplishments. And what we have to recognize is that our life is completely and totally dependent on Him. No matter how great we think we are, we pale in comparison to the greatness of God. Nebuchadnezzar found that out real well. He said, Oh, I'm great. And then he was an animal out in the field eating grass. And when he recognized the greatness of God, he was restored. I think some of us need to take some time and recognize the greatness of God. We get so focused on the things that are going wrong that we actually don't deal with them. And this morning, there's two groups I'm speaking to. The first group is if you've never made a decision to follow Christ this morning. If you've never surrendered your life to Him, you've never yielded your whole self to Him, never repented of your sin. I want to give you that opportunity this morning. Christ made a way for us through the cross. Without Jesus, we're eternally separated from God. But through Jesus, the only way to the Father, we've been given the opportunity of eternal life. There's a couple things that we have to do to inherit that eternal life. We have to repent of our wrongdoings but I'm so thankful that Ephesians 2 says that He's a God rich in mercy. When we repent of our sin and we acknowledge our need of a Savior, and then we choose to follow Him, to follow His Word, our life is transformed. So this morning, if you've never done that, you've never repented, you've never made Jesus Lord of your life, or maybe you did it one time, but you're far away from Him now, and you want to Make that commitment to follow Him. You want to be like the the children of Israel living in Jerusalem. Renew those commitments. This morning, in just a second, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm going to ask you to lift your hand. In lifting your hand, you're signifying, I want to choose to follow Jesus today. I want to repent of my sin, and I want to follow Him. We're going to pray a prayer together, but if that's you this morning, I want you to lift your hand. We're going to pray this together this morning. Jesus, I repent of my sin, everything I've done that separated me from you. Today I choose to follow you. I thank you, Jesus, that you rescued me out of impossible sin. and you made a way for me. Today I choose to follow you in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. To stay connected, follow us on Instagram or Facebook or visit www.equippingcenter.us.